You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he doesn't drink wine. <laughs> it's Jeff McLarge, huge. And I don't smoke shit. <laughs> Pulling the, uh, was that line from the funny Dracula movie there? Oh, Dead and Loving It. No, before oh. that one. Um, love It First Bite? Love It First Bite, yeah. Jeez, that's going back a ways. Yeah, I like almost forgot about that. That's with uh, George Hamilton, right? The impossibly tan George Hamilton. Yeah, weird for a guy who couldn't go out in the sun. (laughs) Oddly enough, several things have inspired me over the past uh, couple of weeks. One, as I mentioned, I've been working on that mural of all the Universal Studio monsters downstairs. Two, I was chatting back and forth with this girl whose ancestry is all over Europe, and she's managed to visit all of her countries of origin, except for one. She's got one left, and that is Romania. And I was like, oh, well, you got me interested because Romania is, you know, was, I should say, Transylvania. That's, you know, the the same area. And then it dawned on me that I have actually never read Dracula. I've never read Bram Stoker's Dracula. So I've started. What would you think? Well, I didn't finish it, dude. I'm only like two or three chapters in. I just oh. I just started today. What I think? I think it is way more intriguing and entertaining than any Dracula movie I've ever seen. It's something. It, the book is something else. Like all of the journal entries from John Harker as he's traveling to the Castle Dracula are super vivid and spooky and scary. Bram Stoker has a really good command of the language to build suspense with like relatively short sentences. Uh I love that book a lot, and I love a lot of the films that have come out of the ideas in that book, but I don't think anyone has done a faithful Dracula yet. Yeah, that's why I've been, I was a little like hesitant to read the book because, or well, I don't have time to read, but uh, you know, I do audiobooks. Yeah, because I have plenty of time for that. I was a little hesitant to about it because the Universal Studios Dracula is, I'm let's call a spade a spade. It's kind of boring. It, the Bella, I mean, Bella Gossi's awesome in it, but the movie is kind of slow and boring. I always felt that the, the 1931, the Todd Browning one was like, I'm going to use the phrase old person scary because it's an old movie. The movie's oh, almost yeah. 100 years old now, right? So it was always, I always appreciated when it was on, but I always thought like the music was kind of dorky and it uses musical cues to sort of set up things that are sort of funny and it takes a little bit of the horror away. And then like in 1990 something or other, Philip Glass rescored it. Oh, I remember that, yeah. With the Kronos Quartet. Yeah. And it's a completely different movie. It's freaking spooky and gross and scary and like compelling to watch. It is unbelievable the difference that the change in score makes. So if you get an opportunity to watch it with the Philip Glass Kronos Quartet score, you you totally shouldn't. You may see it a little differently. 
Because I have that box set. I'm going to look to see if that's – it might actually be on there. I'm not sure. It's, I was flabbergasted at how, how different it, it made the film. Well, I'm going to finish the book first and then I'll go watch yeah, it. Yeah, actually, I, I, yeah. There's a whole bunch of stuff that came out of the out of Dracula. Like, There's not just the Universal Monsters, right? Like one half of all of Hammer Studios' English output in the 60s and 70s was Dracula. Yep. All the weird like the takes of the the stuff from the ideas of Dracula and use them differently, like the vampire lovers and the twins of evil and Captain Crona's vampire killer, and they all kind of suck those movies, <laughs> and they're boring, but they're really fun to watch and really weird and comforting to watch like late at night. And then you know, of course, we have the Francis Ford Coppola one there in the in the nineties. Yeah. I wanted that film to be so good. I was so excited to see it. I couldn't wait to sit and watch it. And halfway through the film, I wanted to crawl out of the cinema. I was so disappointed in I, like yeah, it's the I, it's the least faithful version of Dracula. And yet they stick the Bram, the Bram Stoker in front of it. So and and um and actually one of my favorites that I've seen is Nosferatu. If I had a choice right now to watch either the Bell Lugosi one. Or Nosferatu, I'd probably pick Nosferatu. Yeah, Nosferatu is timeless. It's so good. It's still spooky and scary. Yep. It makes a killer double feature with um, uh, that Willem Dafoe vampire movie, which is like oh yeah, Shadow of the Vampire. That was super right? good. Yeah. That was super good. It has the that has the best scene of any vampire movie in any way, shape, or form in it. When the camera guy and the assistant director are sitting in front of the fire drinking whiskey. And they, they ask Shrek, so what do you think? He goes, not realistic. <laughs> how does a man who's 800 years old know how to buy bread <laughs> or where to get wine? Such an amazing scene. Probably Willem Dafoe's best work. And he's, he's awesome in everything he's in. So. Oh, yeah. Okay, before we get ahead with the show proper, I was doing some retro gaming not long ago. And I was, oh. playing, I was playing Crash Bandicoot. Which is fun, and Crash Bandicoot, as we may, you may or may not know, was scored by Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo. Yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that, but I know who Mark Mothersbaugh is. Yeah, he did a bunch of video games. I think he did. He did. I think he did Earthworm Jim, which yeah. I used to have on Sega Genesis. So. But the game Sonic the Hedgehog Three was scored by a famous musician. Do you oh. know who that was? I want to guess now, and then you can tell me I'm wrong at the end of the show. But I'm. Based on when that came out, uh, is it Danny Elfman? No, it is not. Oh, that would have been a good guess, though, if it, it would was have right. been a, it, 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 Not only <laughs> would it have been, it is a good guess, but you're wrong. All right, but getting on with the show itself. This is the week beginning August the 2nd, and my extensive record-keeping shows me that it is your turn to start this week. August 2nd, 1969. At the time, uh, colossally famous, Bob Dylan... <laughs> Just sort of shows up, makes a surprise appearance at the Hibbing High School that he attended in Minnesota. It's their 10th reunion. So he graduated in 1959, oh. went out to New York to be a folk singer, and came back unannounced to the 10th reunion. And I wonder if they did something like, probably got a request for a ticket to the mail, and they're like, Bob Dylan, come on. Who the hell's Robert and, Zimmerman? And then he shows up and he's like, Hey, hey, Zimmerman. And they're like, you're Bob Dylan, aren't you? And he's like, no, oh, there's a lot of people with cameras around here. And I should have taken a guitar off. Yeah, can you imagine that? Like, just, you know, he just shows up and he's like, hey, it's Smitty. I haven't seen you since shop class. Like, dude, you're Bob Dylan. Yeah. 
Did you get the chicken or the pork? You know? Then he, he like goes down and he's like finger banging the gym teacher. He's like, how does it feel? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, where did you get that harmonica from? I never leave home without it. Uh, I think that would probably be one of the last things I would think about doing. I don't know. I, it's, it's one of those like, is there is there an element of like, oh yeah? Uh, you guys said I was nothing, right? <laughs> All right, well, I'll show you. Uh, but like, I love stories like that anyway. Sure. So there's there's that one. Like I know for a while, you and I both were impressed with Taylor Swift showing up at weddings that she'd been invited to by crazy people who were like, "Oh, we'll invite Taylor Swift. We never met her." Oh right, yeah, yeah. And she and she shows up with cookies and stuff, and she's like, "Hi, I'm here for the wedding." And they're like, "Get out of town." Bill Murray used you know? to do that stuff all the time too. He would just like sh- yep. show up and like sing karaoke at somebody's wedding or whatever. Yeah. 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 A bartender. Yeah. He shows up. He shows up every now and in the, in the summertime in New Bedford. He goes to that's right. That's to Cafe Mimo that's, every every yeah, year. And, or there's reports of him going to get uh, Mia Antonio's to buy chalupas or something. Right. And let me explain something to our listeners who are not of uh, this area. Cafe Mimo in New Bedford. Let's just say the rent isn't too high in those apartments yeah, it's over a, there. It's a rough part of town. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good Bifana at that restaurant, though. <laughs> Putting that out there. And he goes, like, to Fall River to get hot dogs, like, at one of the <laughs> hot dog places. And they're like, aren't you Bill Murray? He's like, yeah, I am. I'll have a couple Coney Island dog. Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get on to the third. August the 3rd, 2011 is the first appearance of the character Miles Morales of Marvel Comics Ultimate Universe. So he would be the Ultimate Universe Spider-Man. Yeah, I like Miles Morales as a character. A I character, like yeah. that. I like that they they sort of they didn't double down on diversity or anything, but it was an audacious choice to 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 pick a younger character. Yep, and and one who had a different background than Peter Parker, and he definitely became one of those. It wasn't like a weird one shot. He became a really good endearing Spider Man with a different set of issues to deal with that weren't like this holdover from the '60s with like problems with the bully and girls in school and yeah. really fun character to read about and, and spend time with. Right. Well, I mean, they did kind of double down with it with the diversity because his father is African American and his mother is, I believe, Puerto Rican. I know she's. Right. Uh, I know she's Spanish on the very base level, but I believe she's Puerto Rican. So they did kind of double down with the diversity. I remember Rush Limbaugh fairly lost his freaking mind that they had a, a, a black Spider-Man. What I, what I mean when I say that, though, is like that isn't the focal point of the book. As someone oh, who no. writes yeah. ca- characters, you know, the focal point of the story are the Spider-Man adventures, and I thought it was wonderful. It was such a natural fit that, that the way that they do the storytelling at Marvel, especially yeah. especially when it's being written well, that that, that sort of stuff... It, it becomes part of the narrative, but it's not a part of the narrative that's like here. This is the important part that you should be considering, you know, right. like, yeah, the, I mean, the main focus of the story is not, you know, the fact that he's, you know, mixed race or anything. Even, I mean, he is, but they don't dwell on that. I like the main kind of like conflict with him where Peter Parker always had the conflict of, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. The story with Peter Parker was he was a teenager. It's a, you know, Spider-Man was always a metaphor for becoming an adult. You know, doing what you should do versus doing what you want to do. Where Miles Morales' conflict comes from, he's super close with his uncle, but his uncle also happens to be the Prowler. In real life, it's his best friend, so to speak, but in superhero life, it's his biggest enemy. Right. So th- therein lies that metaphor. 
there's definitely a dichotomy there where that inside family tension. Yeah, it's all it's all great stuff. It was captured really well in the Into the Spider-Verse movie, which ironically enough for my dislike of generally all CGI films, I thought was phenomenal. Oh, I, I love the animation style in that. They kind of, they made it look like comic book art. And uh, I actually went to the theater and saw it in 3D, which was even better. It looked like a comic book, but it was also 3D at the same time, which was kind of cool. As probably the biggest Spider-Man comic book fan that you know, I absolutely love Spider-Man. It's my favorite superhero. Out of all the Spider-Man movies that have come out, and there are, let me count on the top of my head right now, there's seven Spider-Man standalone movies besides the Miles Morales one. So eight standalone Spider-Man movies. And the Miles Morales one is my favorite one by a huge margin. It's definitely the most entertaining of them. And, and a lot of that is in how well they build the character and mythos and right. show his relationship in the multiverse to the Spider-Man that had the Spider-Man that had come before and that were already whose backstories were already known. I loved it. It was definitely the one that had like I, I think the best like true to the the spirit of Spider-Man mm-hmm. out of all of them. Yep. So yay, happy birthday, Miles Morales. And the Rush Limbaugh can go suck it. <laughs> well, he's he's dead now, so yeah. I, I don't think they have Spider-Man comics in hell. <laughs> they do, but they're all Miles Morales. Oh! <laughs> Want a comic book, Rush? No! <laughs> well, you have to read all of them. Damn it! All right, what have we got for August the 4th? August the 4th, uh, 2006. Uh, leave it to the Japanese in 2006 to create the world's longest hot dog and how said big hot dog hold on and how big was said hot dog ah uh, said hot dog was 197 feet long in a bun jumping jesus christ on a yep. pair of rubber crutches and when the bun ma- measured 198 feet <laughs> of course and it was fit. made of course <laughs> and it was made by the shizuoka beat producers of shizuoka japan and the all japan bread association Try and fit that on the back of a Little League jersey. I <laughs> challenge you. <laughs> that record only stood until 2011, though. Because another hot dog measuring 669 feet. Three times as long, almost four times as long, and weighing approximately 280 pounds. Oh, yes. I remember the great, the great hot dog wars of the 2000s. <laughs> right. Who looked at the Japanese hot dog and said, 197 feet? Pishaw. Uh, yeah, we could beat that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm on yeah, it. 669 feet of hot dog. So two hot dog stories. Yes. One, whenever I go to any place that has like carnival style food, I yes. always ask for the big ass pretzel by name. So I'll be like, yeah, can I get a Mountain Dew popcorn and a big ass pretzel? And usually they don't really give it a second thought. They just It just goes right over their head, right? This one time I asked for a hot dog and a big ass pretzel. And the woman goes, do you want a big-ass hot dog, too? And I'm like, whoa, you have big-ass hot dogs? She goes, we sure do, right? <laughs> so I think she was hitting on you, Bill. Uh, well, yeah, well, it gets worse. So oh. <laughs> so this, now it's... Hey, is that a big-ass cold sore you got there? <laughs> <laughs> You're going to need some big-ass lip balm. <laughs> so anyway, um, this woman gives me my big-ass pretzel... And then puts down in front of me a big-ass hot dog. Now, it is very easy and low-hanging fruit to make dick jokes out of hot dogs, okay? But normally, in a a perfect world, the length-to-girth 
ratio of a hot dog is cartoonish at best. Right. Not this one. This one this just one. looked like a big old porn dong is what it looked like. The, the length to girth of this belonged in a sex education movie, really. Right? <laughs> so she puts it down, and don't forget the color, right? So she puts this thing down in front of me, and I'm looking at it, I'm looking at her, I'm looking at it, I'm looking at her, and she's like, what's the matter? I go, I, 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 I was brought up Catholic. I wasn't prepared for this. <laughs> so I'm telling this story with my friends when I'm down in Florida. I was down in Universal Studios. And then come to find out, at Universal Studio in the City Walk area, they sell big-ass hot dogs. You've heard of, like, the footlongs, right? Yeah. This thing was two feet long, Jeff. A two-foot-long hot dog. It was, like, $13. Wow. Did I get it? You bitch-a sweet ass. Bitch I did. Ass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I, I keep saying, I've been a vegetarian now for, it'll be three years. It's three years. It was three years in July. Oh, yeah. Uh, three years this July, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that when I finally cave, because it's coming, yep. can't maintain this lifestyle forever. <laughs> you just can't. It's, it's going to be a hot dog. that I love hot dogs. I love hot dogs. They have always been one of those weird comfort foodie things that I've always loved. And the cheaper and shittier the hot dogs they are, the better. All right. So moving on to August the 5th. Uh, oh, this must have been a sizzler. August the 5th, 1921, KDKA of Pittsburgh broadcast the Pittsburgh Pirates beating the Philadelphia Phillies in the first baseball game broadcast over the radio. Ah, I wonder what those early broadcasts were like as people try to figure out how to do play-by-play for a game that moves as slow as baseball. Well, I mean, use your imagination on this, too, because, like, prior to this, there was baseball. I mean, the you know, the baseball leagues have been around since before the yeah. 1900s. Yes, 1860s. Yeah, so, like, people must have just, like, read about it in the newspaper. Well, I know that when Ronald Reagan started his career in broadcasting, he would read out baseball. I'm saying this with air quotes. He'd read out the baseball game as if the game was going on, and all he was reading was, like, Smith pitched to home plate. Oh. And uh, Jones went to first. And he'd, he'd go and be like, oh, it's a long hit from first, you know, and he's on his way to first. He's rounding first. He's rounding first and rounding second. Meanwhile, this is all taking place in another town that he can't see. And he's doing it all based on text. Did he make all the sound effects too? Like, I could just picture like Ronald Reagan doing like Michael Winslow from Police Academy there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think effects. he had a, a record player that played crowd sounds. So he okay. would make crowd sounds as if he was there. And I'm sure it wasn't hard for him to come up with a, well, let's see. Uh, I need something that sounds like a baseball being hit. And, Oh, hey, that'll work. But uh, imagine that, like, you're out there, and this is the first first time. It's not like they're going to play a game for you to practice. Right, right, right. Broadcasting what the game is like, so it's like, all right, he's on the mound. 30 seconds goes by. He winds up, and there's a pitch. Oh, it's a strike. Is it a strike? It's a strike, yep. Ten seconds later, the ball's back. He's throwing the ball back to the mound. And, and trying to make a game that moves as slow as baseball exciting on radio. It took time. must have taken a relatively short time, but time for people to get good at it. Yeah, because like and a then, baseball game is usually... I don't know how it was then. Because now on television, you know, there's so many commercials and they get a break for the commercials and all that. So a baseball game on television typically stretches out to like th- almost three hours. But I don't think it would be three hours if they're just trying to get a game done for the radio. But even then, it must have 
have been like boring. When I was watching the the Red Sox, if I couldn't be in front of the TV, if I was doing something in the yard or whatever, I used to love to listen to WEI sports radio out of Boston, yeah. where Joe Castiglione would do the play-by-play. And he was super energetic and his banter in between whatever the slow-ass events were during the game was always really good and he knew a whole lot about each of the players and stuff and it was really fun to listen to him and he made the game come to life sometimes even better than you could if you were watching it on TV. He was far more entertaining to listen to than it was to watch sometimes and there would be days I'd put it on the TV but turn the volume off and let Joe Castiglione play. There was a little bit of a lag between what I'd hear on the radio and what I saw on TV. Didn't matter. You know, I, I sat down and I said to myself, I was like, maybe I should stop watching baseball. And I tried and it's, it's not for me. Somebody that's a listener of the show, my friend Taylor, goes on and on about my accent all the time. She's from Cincinnati. She thinks my accent is hilarious. Let me tell you something. Me watching that baseball game was like Taylor listening to this show because I yeah. could not stop laughing at their accent. As strong as my accent is, theirs was way worse. So depending on when you were watching it, it could have been like Dennis Eckersley or Jerry Remy or any any of the you any could of the recent be pulling uh, names guys, out of yeah. your ass right now. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, I am pulling them out of my <laughs> ass, but like those those were some of the guys that were doing the TV stuff when I was watching the big ass sports announcers. All right, let's move on to August the sixth. August 6, 2018, Alex Jones is removed from YouTube and other internet resources because there's too many of them to list. It's a conspiracy is what it is. And uh, agree with the idea of deplatforming somebody or not. It sort of forced him out of the position of being somebody who had more influence in particular political circles than he has now. I don't know if it's a good idea to, to sort of have the marketplace to silence voices like that or not. I've given it thought and I, I can make arguments either way. So I, I don't have a firm position. And I feel bad that the guy's sort of wackadoo crazy ass lifestyle is supported by a show that he begs people to buy gold and survival food and tells people that the devil is coming. Don't And don't forget his uh, extra tangy tangerine uh, fruit vitality drink. Fruit vitality drink. Yeah, he's, he sells all kinds of like questionable products on his show. And, and spends silver. a lot of time like, it's made of colloidal. That's not what it means. I don't care. Get out. Get out of the bunker. Um, Get out of here, you sleaze stack. It, it's entirely possible that had he just been left to do his thing and freaking YouTube and whatever, that he would be far less deranged than he is sort of at the moment. So I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it is something that happened. And it's it's sort of started the conversation all across the, the news reading or listening world as to who should or shouldn't have access to this to mark, marketplace of ideas. And it's it's a weird place to, to, to sort of make the argument from either place. Yeah, I mean, so. see, I can make the argument because I don't like him. You know, actually, I think the guy's hilarious. And I actually used to listen to his show. I couldn't do all three hours, but I used to listen to his show because I thought he was hilarious because to me it was like performance out. It's like you can't possibly think this is serious, you know? At the same time, but I mean, but the simple fact of the matter is we are being hosted by Pinecast, okay? And Pinecast has a set of rules. Now, you come over my house, I have a set of rules. You're not allowed to play the Beastie Boys in my house, okay? Now, you come over my house and you're and you stop playing, you know, Paul's boutique. You're like, hey, ladies. I'm like, all right, Jeff, you got to go. And Alex yeah, Jones played a lot of Beastie Boys, figuratively speaking. And a, and, yeah. And a lot of play in a lot of people's houses. And I and I understand that. And, and I do understand the market. These are private companies and into marketing. It's it's a much more complicated issue than like prior restraint or published 
speech like in a, a government newspaper or whatever and, and there's a lot of facets to it again i i don't have a i have a, i don't have a dog in the fight it's too complicated for me to comprehend and i can see the other sides of the argument i i just think that what's the best disinfectant drinking bleach no <laughs> um that was former guy uh it's sunlight right is being able to illuminate what it is that you think smells bad or that's how you find where the infection is right so I certainly did a number on my dvd covers yeah <laughs> if you leave the if you leave something in the sunlight it, it will be disinfected and when you push it under ground into other places that are like there's a whole underground ecosystem of things that are sort of like youtube and twitter but aren't and they're not as popular and they have a super rarefied condensed like a dark matter version of the weirdest parts of humanity they're like the people that really believe that the sleeve stacks are out there um, they are. and it's like this tiny weird ass echo chamber and that's kind of where he is now my favorite part about alex jones was his wife was divorcing him and in the custody battle she was like playing clips of his show showing what a you know maniac this guy is and he's like it's a yeah. it's a character I, i'm not really like that i'm not really like that it's a conspiracy against me i'm not really like that <laughs> yeah he's um i believe the phrase that my dad used to use i'm gonna just put this out there is uh nuttier than chipmunk droppings yeah. modern day uh colloquialism your friend bill likes to say Cuckoo bananas. All right, let's uh, punch over to the seventh. But first, uh, a word from our sponsors. Uh, Beyond Tangy Tangerine Vitality Drink gives me more of a twinkle in my eye. I look at this picture of a sleeve stack every day, <laughs> and I'm going to live forever. Order your sleeve stack picture now. I eat three or four big-ass hot dogs every day. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to August the 7th. Oh, a sizzler. It's it's a it's a weird holiday. It is National Lighthouse Day. All right, what do you got for the eighth? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Well, there's a little bit more argument than National. I, okay, so National Lighthouse Day, the most exciting day of the year. The the, the day that I celebrate with, I put up my Christmas lighthouse <laughs> and I. I, I decorate under under the lighthouse with little houses and dead seals and rocks, and I throw salt water all over everything. I mean, everybody does it. And we wait for the peg leg Pete, the holiday spirit, to come <laughs> and bring us a pile of sphagnum, right? That's a how we all celebrate A pile of, so, uh, of lamp oil. And rotten mussels. That's great. <laughs> um, but no, National Lighthouse Day, like, lighthouses are cool. They're neat. In the age of uh, Loran and GPS, they're probably a little less necessary. Right. You know? But at the time, um, yeah. But, you know, I, I mean, up until even when we were kids, the, the one that's in New Bedford Harbor would still, when it was foggy, would still go on to warn incoming and outgoing ships of the rocks and the channels and stuff and provide a beacon for them and sure. help them build a little birdhouse in their soul. <laughs> There's a podcast now. Uh, who are not sponsoring us, but I'm giving them a cheap plug anyway. Of, uh, of Unsolved Mysteries is a podcast for it now. And they recently did a show. I think it was them. They recently did a show about, there was this lighthouse. And like, you know, they would have like four or five people that would work there. And they would trade off like every two weeks. And then when it was this one particular group of fives uh, turn to go over to the lighthouse and man it for the next two weeks, they got there and nobody was there. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Like, without a trace, no note, no nothing. Like, yeah, those five guys, like, disappeared, and they never found any of them. They didn't, like, show up 
elsewhere like yeah we just quit dude <laughs> well why, what do you yeah how do you quit and get off the alley you gotta swim for it it's like alcatraz right 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 did you ever watch the movie the lighthouse with no. uh robert pattinson and willem dafoe no oh awesome i'm gonna make a recommendation to the audience that y'all watch the it willem dafoe it show amazing. it was a great movie directed by the same guy that directed the witch the lighthouse is one of the best creepiest weirdest movies i've ever seen all right let's pop over to august the 8th august the 8th 1988 remember those numbers okay where the temperature in new york city hits a high of 88 degrees on 8888 oh wow that's pretty sequential, yeah. You know, I'm going to channel Alex Jones and go, That's it! That's the day that the world started to end! That's a conspiracy! If you add up all the eights together, you get... A one, two, three... <laughs> oh, carry the, you're going to carry the one. Numerology! <laughs> Hold on a minute. Puts us in revelations. Oh, wait, no, it's the index. No, that's that's pretty rad, though. I mean... I love weird, like, numerological coincidences like that. Yeah, that's neat stuff. Yep. Like, 2014 was 12, 13, 14, and on a particular day, and, and I love all those goofy things. Things. December the 1st of 2011, every single paper that I had to date, I wrote down 12 minus 1 equals 11. <laughs> Just because I'm a math dick. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, there's not really a lot we can harp on about the 8th, so let's get on to the celebrity birthdays. All right. August the 2nd of 1939, horror movie director Wes Craven is born. One of the, uh, I don't want to say low budget, but one of the vanguard of like modern, modern horror. Yeah. He's a little older than I thought. I, mean, I remember, he, yeah, yeah. When, I remember when he died, it was like a big uh, wave in the horror uh, industry. Best known for the Nightmare on Elm Street series and then later on the Scream series. You got any particular favorite Wes Craven? I do. I have two particular favorite Wes Craven films. One is Last House on the Left. Yep. I think that's the film that, I don't know if it brought him to my attention, but that's the film I sought out from his after I saw Nightmare on Elm Street in I high school. I think that might have been his first film. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Fantastic film made for almost no money. The father slash son suicide sequence is one of my, I don't want to say favorite because it's chilling, but it's yep. it's such a creepy and well done scene. I love the bit where the the mother figures out, oh, right, because of the necklace, yeah, that their daughter's dead and that these are the people that killed her. You can see it in her eyes, and it, he does that cut back between her eyes and the husband, yeah, and she's telling him almost telepathically that now she knows and they're, they're going to turn the tables and they're going to murder them all. What's your other favorite? And the other one, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to say no, it's not, but I'm going to tell you anyway, is friggin' Deadly Friend which I saw like three times in the movies, and I loved it. I don't remember that one. High school kid's girlfriend gets killed, and he puts a computer brain in her body from the robot toy that he sort of made in his, like, teenage boy lab. And Jeff, then she goes out and murders everybody. Jeff, if I ever bring up another Star Wars movie, and you're like, I don't like that, we gotta talk. Yeah. <laughs> it was weird like it came out, and it was like, this is a strange movie, and it was like, the, this thing that stands out is like, he has the girl with the I don't know, the what stands brain. out, it's a completely convoluted plot. <laughs> it is a completely convoluted plot. Oh, it doesn't make any sense at all. I really liked Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Yeah. It's not like that was the first meta storytelling, but it was one of the first that I can remember that, you know, it was a movie about the movie being made. Yeah. And I, I like that. It was a nice take on it. And I like that they made his makeup look bad almost on purpose. For that movie, yeah. All right. And, and of course, everybody loves Nightmare on Elm Street. Me too. Yeah, no, it would be really easy to just like talk about Nightmare on Elm Street, but 
Yeah. Talk about other Wes Craven stuff. All right, moving on to the third. August 3rd, 1875, Robert Ernest House is born. And if that name doesn't mean anything... And it doesn't. He discovered something called scopolamine hydrobromide, the first truth serum. (laughs) And it was used for a long time until people realized that it was causing some of the people who were given the truth serum to have, like, hallucinations. (laughs) So anything they told you was suspect. (laughs) It's a deeper truth. The deeper truth of what's really going on. It opens up your third eye. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely like the Alex Jones quality truth. (laughs) The weird thing was that it was administered on little little paper tablets with a picture of Mickey Mouse on them. I've never seen anything like that. That just, that reminds me of that scene from, remember True Lies with Donald Schwarzenegger and Jamie Lee Curtis? Yeah, yeah, yes. First I'm going to stab you in the neck. (laughs) Then I'm going to break his neck. Then I'll kill you. Oh, and how are you going to do that? I picked the handcuffs. <laughs> I love that. She's like, are they going to kill us? Yes, they're going to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> Moving forward to August the 4th, 1902. A woman by the name of Clara Peller. Now, Clara Peller, for uh, y'all Generation X people out there, was the little old lady from the Wendy's commercials that constantly yelled out, where's the beef? She was... I mean, for a little, you know, a little woman, a little, she was like in her 80s when those commercials came out. Yeah. Yeah. She was definitely getting up there. She was like instantly like a household name after that. Well, maybe not a household name, but everybody knew who she was, you know, because those commercials were very popular. She got paid a a big whopping $317.40 for that first commercial. Yeah. But later on, she was making a half a million each. For all the commercials that followed, because it was such a successful ad campaign. Yeah, they even put her in the like in WrestleMania two. She was like a guest timekeeper. That's how famous she was. Yeah, <laughs> that's she was WrestleMania two famous. You know, whenever you get that's to how, Wrestle- fa- how famous were you? Yeah. WrestleMania two. When you're a guest ring announcer at WrestleMania two, you know you've made the big time. She did a commercial later on for Prego Spaghetti Sauce, saying that she found the beef, and then Wendy's uh-huh. immediately fired her. <laughs> because she's apparently only allowed to find the beef at Wendy's. Where's the unemployment line? <laughs> All right, next up. All right, uh, August 5th, 1956, everyone's big sister, Maureen McCormick, known for being Marsha Brady. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Marsha, 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 who uh, never really stepped out of the shadow of being a Brady kid. Well... Yes, she did. <laughs> Just nothing you can really put on, you know, yeah, on the front page of the newspaper. It's yeah. not like she she definitely changed industries. <laughs> we could say she got out of the entertainment, the the mass entertainment business. <laughs> she got out of the, the personal industry. entertainment business. No, she did not. <laughs> <laughs> it's just more intimate entertainment. Yeah, and it's it's bad. Like she was, a, she was kind of a, a a casualty of like 1970s drugs and weird fame and creepy parents and all kinds of stuff, and ended up making some difficult life decisions to stay afloat. She seems to have bounced back. Ish, yeah. In recent decades. Uh, yeah, it was it was funny that like uh, uh, Barry Williams had written that tell all about him being a, a you know. Bad boy Brady and he like kissed Florence Tennyson and Maureen McCormick's like, oh, you kissed her on the mouth? That's cute. <laughs> Want to go to Vegas sometime? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did a half and half with Grandpa Munster for a half of a cheese sandwich. She was in a movie, though, that I kind of want to seek out called Vacation in Hell. It came out in 1979 because not only is she in it, but also Priscilla Barnes from Three's Company and Barbara Feldon from Get Smart. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that must be a, a thing. <laughs> That's a corker of a film. Yeah, it's called Vacation in Hell, so I don't think it's going to be like the uh, the Fifth Avenue Irregulars from uh, 
That one's the North Avenue Irregulars, isn't it? Oh, maybe yeah, that is. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Moving on to August the 6th. Punky Brewster herself, uh, August 6, 1976. That's the spirit. Uh, Soleil Moon Fry. Oh, yeah. yeah, my uh, my knowledge, I'll be honest, of Soleil Moon Fry is not vast. I never really watched the show. I remember like there was like a, a, a big thing about Soleil Moon Fry is, you know, she's Punky Brewster. And she hit puberty like a brick wall. And she was like super, super chesty. Yeah, and if you remember correctly, I can't remember the actor's name, but he played Commandant Lassad on in the Police Academy movies. Well, he was Punky Brewster's father on the show, or step uh, adoptive father on the show. Yeah, I was gonna say he was approximately eighty years older than she was yeah. when she was born. Yeah, but my friend, you know, because she needed to get breast reduction surgery, they, she, yeah. and my friend always used to like imitate Lassad, and he goes, "They're very, very big, Punky." So. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, but it's funny. But she, during the 90s, had the amazing foresight to basically videotape everything. She always brought a video camera around with her, and she videotaped everything. And earlier this year, she kind of like put it all together and edited it down and put out a short film on, well, not short, about an hour and a half long, I guess. Yeah, yeah, feature length, Feature length, yeah. On Hulu called Kid Ninety. It was really I didn't watch the whole thing. I had to watch it in uh, in in bursts because a lot of it was a lot to handle. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, like we just talked about Maury McCormick, right? It's yeah. a difficult business. It's yeah. and it really isn't a place where kids should be. Yeah. This is no place for it's children. An easy place for kids to yeah for kids to get super duper exploited and and really sort of chewed up and spit out. Right. And it sucks. And uh, they actually, I didn't watch any of it because I didn't really need to because I never saw the original, but they actually did a reboot of Punky Brewster with Soleil Moon Fry as a, you know, as Punky Brewster as an adult. Oh. Which is kind of cool, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. All right, moving on to the 7th. Uh, August 7th, 1928, The Amazing Randy. Yay! Who uh, you may not know is like the world's greatest skeptic, but you can watch literally tens if not hundreds of hours of him just picking apart BS artists on late night TV like Yuri Geller oh, and other people. he took Yuri Geller to bitch school. He took him to bitch school. <laughs> he definitely did. It was great. One of my proudest achievements as I was learning how to navigate the internet was I had an email exchange back and forth with the amazing Randy. Did you? On his, yep, on his, uh, on his website, he used to do a daily or weekly puzzle. It was like a riddle. Yeah. And the riddle was, there are, there's a light switch with three switches on it at the bottom of a stairwell. They control three lights in the upstairs, but you can't see which lights. Yep. You know that one of the lights is burned out, but you don't know which one. How can you figure out which light is connected to which switch with the fewest number of trips up and down the stairs? Did my figuring and I sent in my answer. And he wrote back and he's like, you're really close. You can do it in fewer steps. And I was like, okay. That gave me a lot of impetus to like, I'm going to figure this out now. Right, right. Amazing Randy. And I did. And I figured it out and I sent to him, he's like, oh, you didn't win. You didn't win, you know, you didn't win like that was like a, a bumper sticker or something. Yeah. But you got it. You know, great job. And I was like, I I got an email from the Amazing Randy. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. Amazing Randy is a uh, big hero of mine. There was one, like he had this famous fund that if anybody could prove uh, supernatural powers, you know, under scientific conditions, anything supernatural, they would get this, you know, it ended up being a million dollar kind of a, a fund. A million bucks. And then there was this one video that I watched where I think, I forget what the guy was trying to prove. It was some sort of psychic power with with a computer, you know. Mm-hmm. And they went through this thing, and at the end, at the end of all of it, 
Randy says, okay, you get it. You win the $1 million. And he's like, you, you have proven that this is a thing. And then both of them looked at the audience and went, April Fools. <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. They pumped the crowd. It was awesome. All right, and wrapping up the birthdays on August the 8th, 1937, another one that's a little older than I thought he was, Dustin Hoffman. Oh, hey. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman, basically every movie he's ever done is problematic in 2021. (laughs) One of his most famous movies, Tootsie, where he played in... Problematic, I agree. he he played an out-of-work soap opera actor that dressed up like a woman to get a job. That was very popular for its time, but now you're like, yeah, so what? It was. It really was sort of the other side of the social coin at the time. It was like, how groundbreaking is this? It normal, you know, normalizing the the idea, and it was like bosom buddies TV show, which is pro- problematic. Right. Yeah, it was. Like, it was normalizing for the time, and now that it's normalized, we, we kind of don't really need it anymore, right? It has like that minstrel show quality now, which right. is really weird. I think Mrs. Doubtfire falls into the same category, although that yeah, his first film was The Graduate, right? I think that's the first one, one that yeah, he was it's in. One of his first. I have always loved the scene from Marathon Man with him and Laurence Olivier uh, uh, where... Is it safe? Yeah, is it safe? Yeah, I freak, I could go back and watch that scene over and over and over again. And there's a funny story. When they were filming Marathon Man, Dustin Hoffman shows up like one day and he's just like a mess. Like his eyes are completely bloodshot and his hair is all like screwed up and all that. And Lawrence Olivier says to him, he's like, Jesus, Dusty, what the hell is wrong with you? And he goes, well, in the scene that we're filming today, my character is supposed to be completely exhausted. So I've been awake for 36 hours. <laughs> so Lawrence Olivier says, jeez, haven't you ever heard of acting? Right. <laughs> well, that was, it's funny, like a, a, a few few months back, I was reading a, a, I don't know, it's comments by Martin Freeman. You know Martin Freeman from uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yeah. And he was talking about this, the stuff that Jim Carrey said about channeling Andy Kaufman, and he lived like Andy Kaufman for so many months. Right, right. While, and he's like, what a bunch of crap that is. Like, you go and you do the job, and then you go home, and you're normal, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> other than that, you're just, you're, you're mental. But there he was. And, uh, and then also, yeah, and Rain Man, which is another kind of, you know, can't really do that anymore kind of movie, yeah. It's pro- pro- problematic, no? Yeah. You know what I really wish they couldn't do anymore, but I know they're going to? The worst song ever. Jeff, what do we got in the canon today? Uh, <laughs> that's the sound I make. And I like pop music, but I'm going to go, uh, today, and we're probably going to get some angry feedback, but... Bring it! Uh, let it bring it bring it on we'll feed it to the least acts this week's worst song ever and i'm gonna preface this by saying it's gonna be stuck in your head as soon as i mention the name don't blame me i didn't write the damn song yep. is hollaback girl by gwen stefani <sighs> which is it's a perfectly fine pop song but gwen stefani is like at this point in her career she's not even a person <laughs> she's, a, in, she's an institution yeah she has clothing lines and fragrance lines and soap lines and, I don't know, decorated shoe lines. And she wrote a TV show and she has an, an anime and she's banging Blake Shelton and she shows up as a guest or a, a judge on some, like, mass dancer show. So she's, like, all over the place. And she probably has, like, a, a line of golden clothespins to put over your nose so you could talk like her. Again, I don't I don't know the woman. I just know her as, like, she's a product at this point. She's, like, less a person and more of a product. Right. Well, she's, I mean, she started out with No Doubt, and No Doubt was in that time frame where the Southern California ska scene 
there was like a million of them, you know, at that time. There was Real Big Fish, Save Ferris, No Doubt, a, a bunch of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the only ones come to the top of my head right now. But there was a, a bunch. And, you know, No Doubt was one of them. They kind of stopped being ska and started doing like more dance music. So they, well, they had that song, Hey Baby, and the other song, Hella Good, which, yeah. like, I think what happened was the guys in No Doubt were like, well, you don't really need us anymore because it was all like electronic stuff. There wasn't any right. real guitar or even real drums at that point. They had the same potential trajectory as Blondie. Difference is Debbie Harry was like, no, no, we're Blondie. Yeah. To the band. And I don't know if it was the case with Gwen Stefani where she's like, those guys, they carry my stuff. Um, yeah. So once they they basically stopped doing No Doubt, uh, she carried on and she produced this dance stuff. Here's the clip. No student teachers. Both of us want to be the winner, but there can only be one. So I'm going to fight, going to give it my all, going to make you fall, going to suck it to you. Now, I had to play the censored clip. Uh, no, not the album version, the, the version that like aired on the radio and MTV, because this song has the word yeah. <laughs> funny about it is they just take the it out of it yeah. they don't bleep it they, like i do they they take the it out of it so it just says Shh. but it sounds exactly like the the swear that they're trying to avoid right right it says it a total of 38 times in this song just imagine being like the record producer and being like i think i hear a single here it's like half the song is a swear you may as well have the two live crew up there i don't want to say it's less prevalent now to have like the record version is something that you can't ever play on the radio and then there's the single version which is a song that's just cut to pieces and it's not like sophisticated cut to pieces like when CeeLo green just re-recorded the chorus to f you right now it's just it, uh, I, I, I think he changed yeah i think he changed it to, to forget, forget you, you right yeah. and different syllable count and everything it drives me up the wall but in this the hollaback girl clean version is just an absence of lyrics so yeah so it doesn't make a yeah. beep load of sense yeah that's you know? my shh that's my shh that's my shh this <laughs> sh is bananas right 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 i don't know who wrote it i don't like it nobody nobody wrote it nobody wrote it it's not a song uh, the, the thing, my, my problem with stuff kind of like this is there's no real song there. There's yeah. like three hooks that they play back to back to back to back. Yeah. There's no kind of like chord progression right. or anything like that. It just sounds like cheerleader stuff. And there's actually cheerleaders in the video. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you can definitely see that the DNA stretches back to, oh, Mickey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind. Right. Wow. Each generation has their own like, it's like a, a mining vein of like girl group, girl power group. So this one is like her and Katy Perry and, well, it was Britney Spears for a little while. That was right. No doubt was getting started. Now there's like Dua Lipa and BB Rexa and a couple of others, but they don't land pop hits anymore. They still tour and they still put out records and they have a fan base, but they don't chart much yep. because they're, you know, every generation has what ultimately becomes like an extinction level event for that generation. Right. They sort of wiped out the Whitney Houston and Natalie Cole and... 
that sort of soul style of pop girl power pop music that came out of the 80s and 90s. Yeah, and also let's let's keep in mind that Gwen Stefani's like 50 now. Yeah, you know. Yep. Yeah, there's not a lot of 50 year old holla back girls out there. Right. Holla back girls. Oh. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe maybe like you know sore lower back girl. <laughs> I listen to pop radio even now, and and this song still come up every now and then in rotation because pop radio tends to play decades worth of stuff sort of spread out. It yeah. sounds weird, weirdly out of place. I'll say it again because there's no song there. Uh, she still has a fanatic fan base of you know elder younger generation X or elder millennial. I mean, she still has a rabid fan base that'll probably send me hate mail, but. Uh, sorry if you uh, like this song, you're wrong. Well, and, and if you want to, and, and if you want to find her doing new stuff now, she does like a lot of. I'm not going to say older because I don't want to be like it's ageist, but more maturely careered people who've been in the industry for a while. They make yeah. the shift to country, pop country, yep. and that's kind of where she's gone. She's off with Blake Shelton, and they're doing stuff together. And Blake Shelton is a big deal in pop country. Yeah, that's just a matter of following the money. Right. You know, the, there was no more money to be made in ska, so she moved over to dance music whenever that was sort of a thing. And now, yeah, just like just like Kid Rock started out as rock, then he went to rap, and now he's, you know, doing hillbilly now, stuff. Now he owns Kid Rock's, like, rock and roll and cigarette butt barbecue where people swing colostomy bags around in the dining room. <laughs> it's awesome. Come for the chips, stay for the colostomy bag show. Now, you know who is a great musician? Is the composer... Is my trivia question, remember? Oh, that's, uh, uh, damn, I thought we were going to skip it. My trivia question at the beginning of the show was, which famous musician did the soundtrack for the video game Sonic the Hedgehog 3? And I already guessed Danny Elfman, and you told me I was wrong. So was it Johann Sebastian Bach? It was not Johann Sebastian Bach. Was it Sebastian Bach? <laughs> no, it wasn't Sebastian Bach. Was it Bachman Turner Overdrive? <laughs> No. no. Was it I, Kathleen Turner? No. It was a Kathleen Turner overdrive. No. Uh, actually, it was Michael Jackson, of all people. Get, come on. Yeah. The king of pop himself scored the soundtrack for Sonic the Hedgehog 3. I miss Michael Jackson. No wonder that game was so good. Ain't that some shh. <laughs> all right. That is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in approximately seven days. Say hey. goodnight, Jeff. Good night, Jeff. Good night, everybody. Bye, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Make sure you tell all your friends how much you love our podcast. Word of mouth is way, way cheaper than advertising. <laughs>